Hey everyone, it is finally here. I know that you've been waiting for a long time and we appreciate your patience so, so, so much. The follow-up to Olive Hill is a show called 13. 13 is a series of standalone, feature-length, slow-burn, spooky horror stories. If you liked the atmosphere and mood of Olive Hill, you're going to love these stories. We're going to play part one of our first episode for you here. You can find the remaining two parts over on the 13 feed. That's the word 13, all spelled out, wherever you find your podcasts. We'll see you over there. You probably have an idea of what most paranormal investigators do. And by and large, you're probably right. You probably think it's a pretty even split between charlatans and people gullible enough to believe anything. Again, you're pretty spot on. But that's not what me and Leah do. She's my partner. In fact, I'm not convinced that Leah and I have ever worked an actual haunting. That doesn't mean that we don't believe in ghosts or that we're skeptics out here trying to disprove the whole field, no. No, we're both true believers. And we've both experienced what we're sure are hauntings in our own lives. It's what brought us together. We just haven't encountered it again professionally. We've actually managed to rule it out in most of our cases and found alternate explanations for what the client was experiencing. One client, a few years back, kept finding creepy doll clothes and kids clothes all around their house. They were covered in mud and looked like they'd been buried and dug back up. The client didn't have kids. No kids ever came to the house. No doll collection, nothing like that. Leah noticed they did have a cat door built into the garage. So she drove around the neighborhood and found an eviction site. A couple of blocks over, there were a bunch of kids' clothes, toys, including dolls and doll clothes. They were all out on the curb getting rained on, getting muddy. The cat had been dragging them back in and hiding them around the house. A few years before that, a similar case where items were being moved around the house with no explanation, and it turned out to be a case of early onset Alzheimer's. It was good work and we tell our clients up front, it's usually not ghosts. And they're not hiring us to find a ghost, they're hiring us to solve a problem. And we usually do. But it's never ghosts. Well, almost never. We flew back to my hometown for a quick one night job. It was supposed to be simple. Go to the house, do our thing, get to the hotel, sleep for a few hours, and get back on a plane to L.A. the next morning. It was a $10,000 job for one night of work. That didn't include hotel and travel, but still, it's a good job. Our flight began its descent over southern Indiana. We looked down as we crossed the Ohio River, and just like that, I was back in Louisville. 
This is the first time I've come home since I left for LA about 10 years ago. We landed late in the day. The sun would be setting soon. We stepped out of the terminal and waited for our bags. There were TVs hanging on the walls, tuned to local news stations. Two news anchors were reporting a breaking story. A fire had broken out in Museum Tower. The anchors cut to a reporter live from Market Street. She said that the fire started a few minutes ago. The news crew was already there to cover a new exhibit opening on the first floor of the museum complex that gave the skyscraper its name. The footage cut away again, this time from a camera looking up at the skyscraper from the sidewalk below. The reporter's voice continued over the footage of the tower. There was nothing to see. From the outside, everything looked fine. No smoke, no visible flames. The fire must have been relatively small or deep within the interior of the building. The museum complex that took up the first few floors of the building was evacuated, and authorities were still trying to confirm whether there was anyone further up in the building. The news crew wasn't sure where exactly the fire was within the skyscraper. The camera's angle pivoted down from the upper floors of the tower and back to the street level where fire trucks, police cars, and ambulances were arriving. With no other information, the reporter turned the story back over to the anchors in the studio. Museum Tower was a big deal in Louisville back when I still lived here. Construction on the skyscraper started just before I moved to LA. A lot of effort had been focused on rebuilding the city's downtown and the announcement of a new 60-story black glass skyscraper, 20 floors taller than the previous tallest building, well, it was big news for a city that hadn't seen a new high-rise in 25 years. The plan was for Museum Tower to be the centerpiece of a new arts and culture district. The bottom three floors would be host to several new museums and art galleries. High-end restaurants and nightlife would fill out the rest of the ground floor. The rest of the tower would be offices. The plan had more or less worked. Not only did the new tower turn out to be a hub for arts and culture, but other buildings nearby began to rent out space to the same kind of businesses. The entire area had been transformed. I looked around the baggage claim and I noticed other people were fixated on the news coverage too. We got our things and we walked out of the airport past the famous how to pronounce it sign that affirms that any pronunciation of the city's name is acceptable except for the logical one. Leah and I called a car and we checked into our hotel. I'm gonna try to take a quick nap. Meet you in the lobby in an hour? Yeah, that's perfect. Oh, that's me. All right, see you in a bit. Leah and I met online in 2005, three years before my mom and sister were killed. She was an amateur ghost hunter and I I was a ghost enthusiast. We were both in high school. She was in LA and I was living here. I read everything I could find on the paranormal and she snuck into abandoned buildings that looked spooky and haunted. 
We posted in the same groups, and after a while, we just started messaging each other directly. I got her into some of the old Southern Gothic legends, and she sent me photos and videos from her adventures. It was 2005, so it was shot on those shitty old digital cameras. But she sent me at least one video a week. Sometimes she was with friends. Sometimes she was alone. And she would narrate them, explaining what I was seeing, and sometimes just thinking out loud for me to hear. I got to know Los Angeles through Leah's eyes. And she inspired me to go explore the abandoned places in my city, too. She never encountered anything that we thought to be an actual haunting. Nothing that rose to the level of the urban legends and the ghost stories that I'd researched and told her about. But I told her about how different cultures protected themselves from the paranormal. And I started to notice that she was taking some of those things along with her on her spooky adventures. Like I said, even though she'd never actually found anything, she was still a true believer. And it eased my mind knowing that she was doing something to protect herself. I didn't think she would actually encounter a haunting. Not in the places she was looking. Because I had a secret. I'm a true believer too. And I don't know why I waited so long to tell her that I grew up and still live in a haunted house. It had been that way since I was a kid. I waited about a year to tell her and by that time it felt like a betrayal. By that time, it felt like I was keeping a part of myself from her. And that was a problem because she had become one of my best friends. My family lived outside the city in a little suburb called Prospect. It shares a border with Louisville. It feels like a small town. It hugs a curve in the Ohio River. It's a cute little place. It was just me and my mom and my sister. It's hard to tell when it began. It was never like you see in the movies. There were no ghosts popping out at me. It was more complicated. Like when I was a kid and all of a sudden I couldn't find my mom. I would be scared and crying and then she'd come walking out of a closet or, or a crawl space under the stairs, walking with all the purpose of someone coming in the front door. It didn't register then, but, but that's weird, right? There's something unnatural about that. Sometimes I'd find my sister staring at a blank television screen seemingly enthralled with a show that wasn't there. Then there was this recurring nightmare. So my mom used to leave the hall light on for me and my sister, and she left the door to our bedroom cracked open. Later on, when she went to sleep, she'd come back around and she'd turn off the hall light and she'd close our door. 
In my dream, I would be lying there, staring at the crack of light on the floor, and then I'd watch it get wider, like the door was opening. I looked over to the door and I would see a strange old woman standing there, smiling a sinister grin, looking right at me. I'd watch her, frozen. I don't know for how long. And then she'd step into the room and she'd slam the door behind her. And that's when I woke up. But I woke up in a pitch black room. So I would lay there, not sure if it was a dream or if it was real, and I still don't know. Once my sister and I woke up to the smell of smoke. My mom was already out in the living room looking around. The smell was strong, it was really strong. We asked her what was going on and she didn't know. We went back to our rooms while she went out front to see if it was another house on the street. We watched her from the window, walking away from us, looking up and down the road, putting her hands on her hips. And then she turned around. And she could see it. And as soon as she could see it, we could see it. The smoke that was filling the house. I felt my mom's arms around me before I could move. The fire truck showed up as soon as we were spilling out into the front yard. A neighbor had called 911. Neither me or my sister could remember doing it. But there was a fork in the outlet behind the curtains. And I know I saw a burn mark on my sister's hand. She never got in trouble. We knew she didn't mean to do it. And here's the one that I couldn't ignore or rationalize away. When I was older, in middle school and high school. I'd be home alone after school. I would hear the keys in the door. I'd hear the door open. My mom would come in with groceries in her arms. I would say hi and she would say hi back. I remember hearing the sound of crinkling bags and her keys dropping on the table. She'd ask how my day went. And just then I would hear the sound of keys in the door. I turned to look and I'd see my mom coming in again. I'd look back to the kitchen and the woman I'd just been talking to, the one that looked like my mom, she was gone. This happened a few times a year. By and large, life was pretty normal, and we were happy. Life was just punctuated by these, these interruptions. But around the time Leah and I met online, things were getting worse. Those moments, those interruptions, 
were happening to me almost every day. All these little deviations from reality were compounding and it felt like it was escalating towards something. I made excuses not to come home right away after school, but that didn't matter. It was patient. On those days I couldn't get away, I would dread five o'clock and the sound of keys in the door. And it was almost worse when the ghost didn't impersonate my mom because then I was never quite sure. I think I didn't tell Leah right away because I saw how people in those groups talked and I didn't want to sound like some guy just bullshitting her. But also because I wasn't sure that it wasn't all in my head. I finally told her in my senior year of high school when I was about to graduate. And she wasn't mad. She didn't think I was bullshitting her. Right away, she went into the mode of a skeptic, which by the way is the right thing to do in this situation because you have to rule out the normal before you jump into the paranormal. But anyway, she was always good at that. What have you done to test out whether or not it's real? I don't know. Nothing, I guess. Have you considered that this might be something else? Something mental? Yeah, it's occurred to me, but... But it only happens at home. If it was in my head, wouldn't it happen everywhere? I don't know. I think that makes sense, but I don't know how this works. Have you tried anything to get rid of it? It's never actually tried to hurt me. I'm worried that if I try anything, it'll get more aggressive. Okay, well, then here's what we need to do. I didn't like her plan at all, but I was also desperate to know whether this was all in my head. So I did what Leah said. Because of the time difference, she faked being sick and stayed home from school. When I got home, I Skyped her and we set up my computer to face the kitchen. And then we waited. At a quarter past five, I heard the sound of keys in the lock and then the door opening. My mom walked in and said hi. I had my phone out with my mom's contact ready to dial. I hit the call button and I shoved the phone in my pocket. We waited while the longest seconds of my life ticked by. She turned like she was about to ask how my day went. And then I heard it from my pocket. A tiny voice I'd recognize anywhere. Hello? Hello? Honey, is everything all 
Whatever was standing in my kitchen, disguised as my mom, looked down at my pocket and then to the open laptop with the webcam light on. There was a quick look of recognition. She looked like she was proud. Like she was thinking, it's about time. And then, just like the old lady I used to dream about when I was a kid, the same sinister smile spread across her face. I turned to the webcam helplessly, like Leah would be able to do anything. And when I turned back around, she was gone. And I heard the keys in the door again. My mom walked in the front door. And that's what it did. It fucked with your head. It made you see things that weren't there, not just to confuse you or torment you. Sometimes it was seemingly pointless, like the hours my sister spent watching nothing on TV. But it scared the shit out of me. And now it knew that I knew what it was, or at least what it wasn't. I did everything I could not to be home alone after that. I went to friends' houses after school, or I just walked around the neighborhood. But how could I even tell if I was home alone anymore? Something in the house looked and acted like my family members. How could I be sure? Leah saw the whole thing. I was afraid it wouldn't happen. I was afraid she wouldn't see anything and I'd seem crazy, but she saw it. She was recording and it didn't show up on playback. It was just me reacting to nothing. But she told me that she saw it. In real time, she saw it. And she described it back to me just like it happened. To this day, that's the only encounter with the paranormal that we can confidently say that we've shared. I made my college plans around getting out of the house. I applied for schools that were too far away to commute. I started college in 2008 and I moved out. I didn't realize how stressed I'd been until I was away from that house. I slept harder than I'd ever slept in that constant low-grade panic that I'd been living with for as long as I could remember. Well, it was gone. I felt relaxed. I felt good. And then just a couple months after I left home, my whole family died. I got out of the shower and I put on a change of clothes. There was a text waiting for me. Tonight's client, Mr. Caddick. He asked if we were still meeting at 9 p.m. I confirmed and double-checked the address and then texted Leah to let her know that the customer had checked in. 
I laid down and closed my eyes for about 20 minutes until my alarm went off to tell me that it was time to meet her in the lobby. We got a ride to a little restaurant close to the hotel. There was a TV hanging in the corner, the same video of Museum Tower, and a reporter talking about the fire. The sun was going down, so the sky was darker, but otherwise the footage was the same as it had been in the airport. The news anchor reported that the fire was in one of the upper floors. The sprinkler system wasn't operational. The fire had gotten out of control. How do you even fight a fire in a high-rise? Like, do you have to drag the hose all the way up the stairs? I think there's access points in the stairwells, every Mm. few floors, you know, where the, the big pipes in the stairwells. Yeah. But if the sprinklers aren't working, do you think those are? I don't know. So they'd have to start at the bottom of the fire, and then they'd have to just keep chasing it up through the building, through these parts that are already damaged. The floors may not hold up under their weight. I don't know. Hopefully it's not that bad. So, are you planning on going to the cemetery or uh, back to the house? Oh, um, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. Not this trip. She's trying to be supportive, but I don't want to think about it. No, no, I totally understand. If you decide you want to go, though, I can go with you moral support or whatever or I can leave you alone whatever you want to do well let's see how long it takes if we're in and out real fast maybe I'll swing by you can come too if you want you can can meet my real mom instead of my fake one she cringed at the reference to that day that she saw the thing pretending to be my mom in the kitchen sorry that wasn't cool it's okay I'd love to meet your real mom. There was an awkward silence while she felt guilty and I didn't know how to tell her that she shouldn't. Want to run through the case again one more time? Yeah, hang on. I'll pull it up. She got her phone out and opened up our company email. So we have a process that we go through when we take on a new case. The customer gives us a brief description of what they're experiencing. We call them and ask them to go through it again with us on the phone. We go through a questionnaire with them. A lot of customers don't understand the full scope of how a paranormal experience can present itself, so they miss things when they tell it. Sure, they'll tell us about things appearing, disappearing, and moving around the house. They'll tell us about whispers they hear at night but they don't think to tell us about the headaches they've been having since it began or any new people in their lives. After we've done the interview and the questionnaire, we send a written account back to them in our own words and we ask them if we're describing it accurately. Now we all know that we're on the same page. We explain all the possibilities we need to rule out before we can say for sure that it's anything paranormal. If we think it's likely to be paranormal, We tell them what we'll do next, and we develop a plan of action. There are a ton of legal documents that we have them sign. In this business, sometimes people can panic, and when people panic, 
they can do stupid things like run and fall down the stairs. Our waiver covers everything from plugging our equipment into a bad outlet and starting a fire, right up to catastrophic injury and death. Leah found the file and read the statement out to me. Right. Um, customer is David Caddick, suspected haunting. Uh, the affected address is 2485 Harrison Street, Louisville. It's a rental house. Mr. Caddock is the owner and landlord. He lives off-site. Uh, he's owned the place for 18 months. The affected individuals are primarily his tenants, but he says he's experienced it as well. The characteristics of the suspected haunting include apparitions, figures that appear in the home and impossible places, audible manifestations, including voices and whispers, blah, blah, blah. Affected individuals become disoriented and distressed. He's gone through five tenants in the 18 months that he's owned the property, and they have only accounted for nine months worth of occupancy. Wow. So it's been vacant half the time he's owned it. His main concern is that he can't keep the house occupied and he's bleeding money. Okay, just looking up the address. Uh, It's for rent now. $1,800 a month. So if it's been vacant for nine out of the 18 months that he's owned it, that's that's $16,000. No wonder he's willing to pay so much to get us out here. It's kind of weird that he didn't look for someone local. Oh, there was an article in the paper, like, a couple of years after I left town. Louisville native whose family died under mysterious circumstances moves to L.A. to be a ghost hunter. Catchy headline. Yeah, yeah, it was. Okay. Now is as good a time as any to tell you what happened to my family. It happened right after I moved out to go to college. If I was still living at home, I might not have made it out either. My sister and I were texting a few nights before it happened. When I was still living there, I told her about the run-ins I'd had with the thing that looks like our mom. It had never happened to her and, and she didn't believe me. But right after I moved out, she started seeing it too. I told my sister to just go with it. Don't let it know that you know. She'd be out of high school and off to college in another year too. Maybe after that, we could convince mom to sell the house since she wouldn't need such a big place anymore. I should have told her to just get out, to come stay with me but the house had been harmless up to that point. Scary, but harmless. Two days later, I got a call saying my mom hadn't shown up for work in a couple of days and my sister hadn't been to school. Calls were also made to the police and they came by to do a welfare check. And that's when they found them. It was carbon monoxide poisoning. The police had told me that much on the phone. I talked to Leah that night. Actually, it was the first time that we just picked up the phone and talked. Not on a webcam, 
not texting or chat, just two voices in two dark rooms on opposite sides of a continent. I'd never felt that alone. It wasn't until the next day when I drove home that I realized exactly how strange it was. They died of carbon monoxide poisoning, that was true. But I'd imagine them going in their sleep, in their beds, just falling asleep and not waking up. But they were in the garage, in my mom's SUV. My mom was in the driver's seat, her hands on the wheel as though she were steering. Her foot was on the gas even though the car was in neutral and the parking brake was on. The car was turned on, but the engine wasn't running anymore. It had run out of gas. In the back seat, my sister sat up with her head leaning against the glass like she was watching something outside the window. The coroner and the police said it looked like they were alert right up until they couldn't be anymore. Until the gas just became too much. They couldn't explain it. There are rare cases of people accidentally doing something like this. Finishing up a phone call in the garage and accidentally falling asleep. Or someone having a medical emergency and losing consciousness with the car running. But mom looked alert. Her hands on the wheel, foot on the gas. She didn't look like she'd just fallen asleep or passed out. She looked like she thought she was driving. Not to mention, my sister would have had to have fallen asleep, too. They'd packed bags. They were in the back. It looked like they were going somewhere. Neither of them had told me about any plans to take a road trip. I think the house got into their heads. I think they thought they were leaving on a road trip. I think, in their minds, they saw trees and little towns fly past on some interstate, on their way to wherever they thought they were going. Except, in the real world, they sat in the car while it was still running, with the garage door closed, and the house filling up with exhaust. I think that's exactly what happened. I stayed in Louisville for four days. There was a funeral to plan. My uncle, her brother, did most of the work setting that up. He took the lead on settling their affairs too. We went to the house and signed everything over to an estate company who would sell it all at auction. I had to sign paperwork and we went through the house and I got everything that I wanted to keep. I spent no more than 10 minutes in there. I never wanted to go in that house again. 
I knew that it wouldn't hurt me now because it wanted me to see what it did. It felt like, I don't know, it, it felt like it was gloating. I didn't go back to school. Instead, I let Leah talk me into coming to LA for a while. It's not like I hadn't thought about it before. There'd been an open room in the house that she shared with several other people, and I was about to come into enough money to get set up out there. That money would come in handy for something else that Leah and I had been talking about. Starting our own paranormal investigations company. Leah had wanted to do it for as long as I'd known her. And I wanted to figure out what had killed my family. And now, we're glorified detectives. Problem solvers. We're the ones that figure out that the voices you hear in the dark are coming from your air return vents. That that scratching sound is dead leaves in the HVAC system. And we make a living at it. We get paid for solving problems, whether or not it's a haunting. And neither of us has seen a ghost since. But that was about to change. And that was part one of our new series 13. If you like what you hear, find us over on the 13 feed. That's 13, all spelled out, anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.